Invest in yourself today with our Insider Pro product, which gives you the career path to reach the next step in your cybersecurity journey. Join today on Cyberate.it using the discount code PODCAST. You're listening to the 401 Access Denied Podcast. I'm Mike Rowan, VP of Engineering and CISO at Cyberate. Please join me and my co-host, Joseph Carson, Chief Security Scientist at Thycotic, as we discuss the latest news and attempt to make cybersecurity accessible, usable, and fun. Be sure to check back every two weeks for new episodes. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another 401 Access Denied podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Really excited about today's topic. And we also are a special guest that we have on the show. Again, my name is Joseph Carson. I'm the co-host of the show itself. And uh, background, you know, long time in cybersecurity and based in Tallinn, Estonia. And my other co-host is with me today as well, Mike Gruen. Hi, Mike Gruen, uh, VP of Engineering at Cybrary, uh, DC-based company. Um, long career in IT and cybersecurity as well. Okay, and it's really and great we have to with us. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, and we have with us a very special guest. Uh, David, I'll let you introduce yourself. Well, thank you. So I'm David Scott Lewis. Uh, um, uh, think of David Lightman from the character War Games. You Google my name, you'll get the whole story. You'll hear more about it uh, in the, over the next uh, half hour. And I'm, in, I'm a COVID-19 refugee in Hong Kong right now. And might be in uh, the UK pretty soon. The only one of the few people in the world who's currently traveling. <laughs> that is that is actually a very unique situation right now. So, yes, you're in Estonia. We can't go anywhere. So uh, before <laughs> yeah. opening up, I did see some people send me pictures at the airport asking me today, Joe, are you, are you missing the airport? Here's some memories, and they were kind of teasing me with pictures of the lounges and airports. So. Uh, but sometime in the future, we'll, we'll all get to travel. But that's a very unique situation. And of course, David, as you mentioned, our fun topic today is, you know, and it's, it's really dear to my kind of my background and what got me into the industry is that, you know, basically through everyone's careers, you know, what really shaped me in, in, in being the industry that I'm in was a lot of the iconic movies that we watched when we were younger that had an, a big impact. And I know right now my kids are are watching the likes of the Friends episodes again, so they're really getting influenced by Friends. Um, but what really influenced me was really iconic hacker movies that really kind of got me thinking and got me really interested in gadgets and also influenced me being, from a very young age, getting into gaming, playing games, you know, playing uh, with friends, and really getting in competitive side. So today's theme of the podcast is really going through a kind of history uh, timeline of iconic hacker movies that's really shaped our industry. And, 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 and even when I go to events, um, we, hand, we have hacker movie nights. And even in the current situation where people are distanced and, and communicating over you know, things like Zoom, uh, Teams, and Skype, and so forth, is that we're even watching movies together. We're even actually doing it through Discord channels and watching it online, um, either using Netflix as the medium to watch it. Um, so for me, today's theme is really exciting. And it's a pleasure to have David also give us uh, uh, some of his insights and, and background into you know, some of the, the iconic movies. So I think for me, um, I'll start off with you know, one movie that really shaped kind of my kind of background. Um, there's, you know, I've got a couple that I like to kind of, I watch over and over again. 
but one movie that really shaped kind of war, I mean, industry today, of course, was, was War Games. War Games was one of the first movies that I got to watch. Um, you know, uh, one kind of my father, you know, got it on, uh, you know, I think it was even Betamax back then or, or VHS, whatever, whatever <laughs> medium we had available. For us. And we sat, you know, and watching it. And it was for me, it was, you know, watching the technology and watching techniques. And even actually at that time, uh, when I was in high school, or what we refer to as secondary school, it actually also got me very tech savvy that I actually use some of the techniques from the movie, <laughs> which is interesting as well, because a lot of the techniques we, we, we even continue to use today. Mm-hmm. So Mike, I'm not sure, did you, did you get to watch it, I guess, over the weekend or did you watch it recently or, or have you not watched it at all yet? <laughs> but War Games, I've definitely seen it. And, uh, <laughs> and we, um, I've watched it. Uh, it was on actually TV just a couple of weeks ago. So the timing of this is, is pretty funny. I watched it with my kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's... Uh, I remember I, it's one of those movies I watched over and over again. And mm-hmm. for me, the thing um, after I got into uh, IT and, and software development and uh, looking back at sort of how, at least the movie, and we'll hear more about the, the real story from David, obviously, yeah. um, but the sort of innocence of how it all happened and, and felt just so paralleled so many other things that I think happens in hacking where you're, you know, you, you sort of, these unintended consequences, things get out of control. You wrote a thing and next thing you know, it turned into an internet worm purely by accident. Or um, I have a similar experience in my background where I accidentally took down Colby College with a uh, denial of service <laughs> attack um, because I was just trying to find out if my girlfriend was online, stuff like that. And so these sort of like innocent, like how it goes from you trying to just do something for yourself and, and blows out of, out of proportion. I think at the time that I first saw the movie, I didn't really have an appreciation mm-hmm. for that. And then later in life, as I watched the movie over and over again, it just how sort of true to life that is, was really what sticks with me on that movie. Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, you know, <laughs> I'm lucky enough. I'm fortunate enough that, well, I, sometimes I prefer not to, to talk about some of the things I did. I can't, I can't <laughs> Um, uh, but some of the, some of the techniques, I mean, I did use, you know, it, it, and this is the first time that probably, you know, live I'm, I'm, I'm sharing uh, these details. When I was at school, we used to have a, a number of, uh, Apple computers, uh, that we use in, in our computer class. And one of the things I did was, you know, one is I used to play computer games and make money and I, you know, which used to be very costly and used to have the look of ways to be able to get access to computer games or, you know, back then it was about cutting the, the tape cassettes or that, you know, finding ways to record and play them back. So you didn't have to, you were able to copy them straight from the tapes. Um, but at school, one of the things that I find was interesting, which what got me really tech savvy, was I used one of the techniques that was actually in the movie where uh, it was a, David Lightman basically goes into the, the uh, he's getting detention and they're going to see the headmaster and actually finds out where the passwords are actually stored, basically posted in the desk. Um, in my case, I, I just observed and watched the teacher doing some, what we refer to as social engineering to find out where the passwords are stored. And finding that password, what I used to do at school was I would actually, during the computer class, I'd install all the computer games on the computer. And I would actually charge people for me installing the games onto their computers as well so they could play during the class. And then what was great was is that the administrator of the school that evening would be so angry and, and, and so, who put all these computer games on these computers and they started deleting them all. So the next day when we were back in the computer class, they're all gone again. So I could actually recharge again, knowing where the password was stored to actually put all the games back in the computers. And this became this repetitive thing. And it also fed my you know, personal you know, gaming console was it era. Uh, but actually, you know, one thing that we see in, in, in movies 
is that translates into real world scenarios. Very much, I think the things that kind of keep to the descent of time is the social engineering aspect. There's a lot of movies then did use social engineering as a primary technique. Um, so, so David, um, you know, welcome to the show. And, and again, you know, you know, having um, a very close kind of tie to war games. Uh, can you give us a bit of the background in, in reality into you know, what techniques were, were real and what techniques you know, would have you used uh, prior to, to, to the movie coming out? So war games, uh, yeah. So it's important to separate the screenplay, which was very accurate from, uh, from what we saw in the movie, which of course had to be made into a movie. Um, so the screenplay was a little bit different. Uh, it, it did pretty much talk about what's really done. So the movie, but the movie, it does, does mirror many of the techniques that were really used back then. So we're talking about, so let me, let me actually put something in there in the actual time frame. war games. Uh, my real war games took place uh, in between 74 and 75. Mm-hmm. So, and then the movie came out in 83. So there's that time lag there, but uh, you can see with the inside of the Altair, I think they showed the MCI yeah, in the computer and the movie it's, they show an inside uh, computer. So, so it's, t- so it's tied into, uh, to all of that that happened back then. And it was a very different environment. I'm a little bit older than you guys. So, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, a, I'm a few years younger than, than Gates and Jobs. So, uh, unfortunately, because uh, if you notice, uh, uh, Scott McNeely, all of them were pretty much in the, about three years older than me, three to four years older. So, uh, so unfortunately, I missed that. But uh, so there were certain things happening back then. And it was kind of like a hacker slash hobbyist. Mm-hmm. So I would say that people back then, we could build computers. We had to. We had no option. You would get a you would get something from Altair or MSI, and the parts would be missing. Parts would be missing. So <laughs> you're building your own computer and parts are missing. So you had to actually understand things. Then there was Adam Osborne's books where you actually learn, you know, you could do coding, you could do machine and assembly coding. So it, it was just a very different world back then. But uh, but also then trying to understand. I used to use patents to try to get a better idea of how systems are working, even though, of course, you're not going to get too much information, but you'll get a better understanding. And that's something that's never really been covered. That didn't get shown in war games. But in war games, they showed the research part. In reality, that's at UCLA. Um, And in the movie, you know, in the movie, they show Seattle. And the Pacific Northwest Lab, it tells PNO. But in reality, that's the RAND Corporation. Oh, yep. And and that's UCLA's um, main research library. So uh, so a lot of those things are, are accurate. We're getting the information. There's also the AI component that was also very important to me from the beginning. One thing that that a lot of people overlook about war games is that okay, hacker movie, but they forget that war games was was the first movie to show AI in its current time frame. Unlike 2001, showing how. In 2001, War Games is actually showing AI techniques at that time. And it was the first movie to do that. So, uh, and that was very important to me. I've been involved with AI since then. So, uh, so anyway, I'm happy to answer any questions about War Games. And I'll tell you what influenced me to get into all this. So, so I mean, that's really interesting. I th- absolutely. You know, with basically AI and, you know, Computers playing computers, and I think it was you know how to get the computer to play itself, and using things like tic tac toe. 
as those examples um, is really kind of great. And, and of course, everything that you had, you know, absolutely. I looked at, so I've got a retro pie and I even go back and play a lot of the games from that era just kind of to bring back the memories things like you know um you know going back and playing monkey island and, and r-type and there's a lot of games from the 80s era that i played but also going back into the old pac-man tic-tac-toe games that really kind of influence a lot of you know even that type of culture as well um so from that you know what 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 you know how did you get connected with war games and, and lasker and uh how did you get kind of, where was that kind of connection or, or, or meeting or how did it evolve from that? Okay, so a friend of mine was working as an admin to Marty Kahn. That's uh, J- uh, James Kahn's brother. And he's in the, he was uh, an agent of William Morris. So Larry and Walter, uh, Larry Lasker and Walter Parks, who wrote the screenplay, they had, I guess they were working with Marty. I guess he was their agent. So they arranged for a meeting. It was kind of a fluke situation. Uh, The girl that had worked, the admin, they were looking. Originally, the plot was supposed to be about some kid who won a science fair. And it was going to be the Stephen Hawking prototype or protege and uh, protege. And and because of the time I was studying astrophysics, Caltech was involved, all sorts of other things. And then they find out, oh, okay. And then we kind of get pulled in a completely different direction. That wasn't the original focus of the movie at all. But when we were working on the screenplay, I actually pulled it in a different direction, which, which Walter talks about in the 25th anniversary. Uh, they have a, a, a session at Google and he talks about, I actually forgot about it. It's what I wanted to see in the movie mm-hmm. because this is during the strategic defense initiative. So I wanted it to be involved about space-based warfare charge particle beam weapons all sorts of other things and then they brought it basically back to me which when ultimately wrote the screenplay surprised me because that came out of nowhere mm-hmm. so so it's like yeah it was it was it was interesting to see how that whole thing evolved and it took several years you know originally the screenplay was owned by universal that's who i got paid by and then, uh, so Universal, I believe Disney owned it or Paramount owned it at one point, and then uh, and then MGM got it. So there was a little bit of a lag. It didn't go. It wasn't a smooth process uh, getting it made. And then and then the directors changed as well. There were two directors, at least two directors that I remember on War Games. So uh, so it took a while. I wasn't that involved with the movie, but the screenplay, yeah, the screenplay was was almost verbatim and then and, and then being the character there's even even people i deal with today will say and i'm i'm over 60 years old now will say that they can see my personality in the david lightman character and i would say yeah that's that's accurately captured as well so uh, so anyway that's uh, it's the time frame of 1975 yeah, because the screenplay itself was was kind of around you know, 1975-76 time frame. And the movie didn't come out until what kind of early 80s, 83. 83. So there's a, you know, a large gap between, you know, one is the screenplay being created and also the movie being you know, released itself. Um, did, you, did you ever get to meet Matthew Broderick at all? Or, or was that I something did. that... I did. Yeah, I did, I, I did on, on the, uh, at MGM. Uh, on, where, you see the, where you see the main stage at NORAD, 
uh, that's where I met Matthew Broderick. But I didn't really develop much. Well, by the time I got to the movie, I wasn't uh, very involved with the movie directly at all. Uh, again, it was but the screenplay, yeah, a lot. I would say the two most influential people in the screenplay were myself and Willis Ware at the Rand Corporation, who's now passed away. Um, but those were, I would say we were the two key people that, uh, that were involved with the screenplay. It's interesting. One of the things you mentioned, you were studying astrophysics, which is interesting because I think that's where, um, if I look in, when I read a lot of the old books from that era, because I still, I like to read and also research, I find that most people who were involved in, in computing or in, you know, computer science or information technology were actually into astrophysics and space and flight. Um, was that a common thing then to study um, that kind of moved people in that direction? Was was it, uh, or, you know, the people that was involved, were they coming from the same background? You know, that's a great question. You know, I've done many interviews, and that's the first time somebody's asked that question. Uh, so remember, back then, because I'm older than you guys, back in the mid-'70s, there was no computer science. Right. Mm -hmm. You either studied math or you studied electrical engineering. Okay, so the ACM, the Association for Computing Machinery, they were the math geeks. And IEEE, double E geeks, right? Uh, so things were different back then. So people had different backgrounds. It really was more hobbyist. People willing to get their uh, hands dirty actually could build stuff. Oh, popular electronics. I would say that's the one thing we all, that was our Bible. You know, every month we were looking forward to the new issue of Popular Electronics, and we would buy stuff. We would remember things came in kits. You got them in the mail. You put them together. You got out your soldering gun. You actually did this stuff. I had a ham radio. Um, I, 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 I had a, I had a novice initially, of course, then advanced. So uh, that was pretty typical too. You had a lot of people into uh, ham radio back then, and then I also built a telescope in the sixth grade, a Newtonian telescope. So there were there were some people that were doing that. I would say ham radio. And certainly popular electronics is where everybody coalesced around popular electronics. Yeah, I think there's a really good uh, movie or documentary that was on PBS uh, called Triumph of the Nerds that I think does a very good job of capturing sort of those 70s. It's the early days. It's the, the Apple Microsoft story of back in the garage. And I think it does a great job of sort of showing um, all of the different like avenues that people got into computing back then because right as you said there was no there was no comp sci it was math or is double e or you were doing some sort of hobby like um like ham radio and I, I know a lot of uh my friends who are actually in software um or in it uh their dads were actually doing ham radio and that's what influenced them um so mm -hmm. uh, definitely and then uh even by the time i went to college the University of Maryland College Park, originally the comp sci department was still part of the math department. Um, it then spun out into its own department, but it was at one point still part of the math department. And so the, the, there were a lot of, there were still a lot of the, like a lot of people in comp sci were in math or double E majors as well, like double majoring. So um, I think that that continued all the way through the nineties. Yeah. I remember you guys had one of the earliest, uh, fairly large AI departments. You don't get credit for it. Everybody <laughs> thinks MIT and Stanford, right. but they forget that you guys had one of the larger AI departments, one of the earlier ones too. Yep. 
College Park gets, uh, I, I think, because it's a public school, they don't get the uh, some of the recognition. But yeah, uh, one of the I, I actually went there for mechanical engineering and ended up in Comp Sci. Um, but yeah, it's one of the top ten. It was at least for a long time one of the top ten uh, uh, Comp Sci departments in the country. I think it still probably is. Um, but yeah, they uh, there's a lot of groundbreaking work that was done there. Yeah. And I, I think it's great as well, David. One of the things I'm seeing in the industry as well is people going back to basics, people going back to, you know, really tying it back. Even, you know, ham radio today is actually becoming more and more popular. Mm -hmm. uh, people are starting to get more into it because ultimately at the end of the day, everything we do is based on radio waves. It's based on communication and radio waves. And a ham radio is probably the basics of showing how that, you know, primarily functions. Um, so I see a lot of people in the industry and, and my peers, and even, even when my kids are asking, you know, you know, what things should they get into or what should they look at? And one of the first time I'm looking at those ham radios, they should understand how ham radios work because ultimately that's the basis of communication, the radio spectrum itself. And also it's really great to see things like Raspberry Pis coming out and, you know, the Intel ones and other types of microcomputers that force people to build that force people to understand how it puts together. Because, you know, I was a bit, being originally from Belfast in Northern Ireland, we were always a little bit behind the times and we always had to kind of push ourselves to, to try and get the information because the magazines, 2600, would come in months later. We wouldn't have it, you know, the first editions, we wouldn't have those early editions. And you were going and, and even, you know, some of the games you had to, to, you know, write in basic, get to compile it, run it, and hopefully that they actually typed it out right or the print was right. Otherwise, you'd find out a month later that, you actually, they, they had an error at a certain line. So I think I'm happy to see people going back to those times and those, you know, elements where people are understanding the basics and how things function. And I think that's really critical because I think for me over the years, that's been lost. Is people, you know, today if I looked at, you know, when I did software programming or computer science, you really had to understand, we were sitting with oscilloscopes and watching the waves going through and trying to understand about, you know, the bits and binaries and machine code and algorithms, understanding how it works. And one of the I, my worries was that when I started seeing people in the later years of my studies and sometimes going back to do additional uh, courses, it was copy-paste. It was repurposing or reusing existing things and not knowing how the fundamentals works. And that scared me a bit, but it's great to see. Hopefully, it will be a trend that people will get back to those basics and, and really get back to, I think, that really, you know, that hardcore education where people were doing it because they wanted to and they wanted to learn rather than being, you know, for the sake of just being like everybody else. Yeah, I would wonder how that's going to change. So back then, of course, besides popular electronics, then initially you had Byte Magazine and David All's magazine, Creative Computing. So Creative Computing was the software magazine. Byte was the hardware magazine. And, and it, was, it was a lot of fun. It really was a lot of fun. And I don't see that now. I don't see, I, right now, let's face it, the CS major they could even be from cmu or some great school like that you rip open the computer they have no idea what's underneath the hood right yeah yeah and there's i mean i'd go even further with cs majors um because we've built on top of so many things that i can talk to a cs major and they don't necessarily even understand common algorithms and sort of the the stuff that really is required for a back-end developer to understand in term you know these like just these concepts and i I, ha I come from a sort of maybe a different mindset, which is, I think it's great. I think it's great that you can get someone who is essentially an artist uh, to come in and start learning how to do 
programming and build amazing websites on top of all of the things. And it's just layers upon layers upon layers. And yes, I think there are still, you know, if you're interested in the real hardcore electronic part of the computer science, then you're probably going more for a double E major still or some sort of dual degree as opposed to comp sci, um, which comp sci now is a huge, like when I was at Maryland, comp sci was a degree. There didn't, they didn't have any like specializations. Now there's software engineering is a specialized thing. Um, uh, information technology, you know, they have all the, you know, and uh, doesn't really matter. There's just a bunch of them. And I think it's, it's interesting on the one hand, because I think in a lot of ways, the degree is more of a vocation than an edge. It's, it's now teaching you how to work, um, which is, has its advantages. Um, but I do think that there's this sort of layering and um, the fact that things like Stack Overflow, speaking of copy and paste, that's how a software engineer <laughs> solves problems these days. They Google it, they find the solution. Hopefully they, they copy and paste the answer and not the question. Um, and then they move on. And there's some good things to that. That's how we're able to have what we have because we've just kept on building up. We don't actually have to understand all the way down. But it's still important that there's hopefully people coming in. Error. What was that? Yeah, hopefully they fix the errors when they're doing this copy and paste. As well. Exactly. <laughs> right, right. But I mean, but I mean, I think, and I think, so right, it's great. I, I think it's important that we continue to have people coming in at the, you know, at, at every layer of the stack from artists making like amazing website to hardcore doubly sort of understanding the, the electronics and the, and the, you know, the, the underlying um, computer architecture. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's amazing how you can come out of a, out of a degreed program and not necessarily understand lots of different parts of it. I had to write a compiler. I got to imagine most CS majors coming out these days. Don't, they, they don't yeah. write compilers. <laughs> no. So, they, they, so I should tell you what, sure. So what, what influenced you in, in your right. career? You were doing astrophysics. What, what, did there have anything in your background? Was it mostly, was it books or was it, you know, society or was there movies that influenced you, you know, prior to war games that got you really interested in, in the industry and, and, and electronics and, and maths and, and computers? Sure. So there was one segment on 60 Minutes. That was it. Mm-hmm. So 60 Minutes. So, Joe, you're not from America. Do you know 60 Minutes? Yeah. The TV I, show? I do know 60 Minutes. Yes, I do. <laughs> okay. 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 We get it. So we get it a year later. Okay. So, uh, so 60 Minutes had a segment called Dial E for embezzlement. Mm. That was the name of the segment. And, and when I saw it, I thought, and I was actually, I believe I was in the ninth grade when I saw it. I'm not sure about the dates here, but I think I was in the ninth grade and I was doing a math seminar during the summer. Again, I'm not a hundred percent sure of the dates, but, but I was doing that. And when I watched it, I thought I'm actually using some of this equipment already. So let's see what I could possibly do with this. So I got the whole idea from, from seeing that segment on 60 minutes. I would say that's what really influenced me. I mean, in my background, uh, because of my age, we're talking Apollo, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm that generation growing up watching that happen. And then, uh, believe it or not, Star Trek did not influence me, although I'm uh, a loyal fan now. Uh, it was uh, it was on it, I believe it was on, on Friday nights at 9 o'clock or something. But it was my parents wouldn't let me stay up that late when Star Trek was on. But I did watch, uh, you know, 2001 was an influence obviously. So does the Andromeda Strain. I would say those two movies, yeah, 
the original Andromeda Strain, not yeah, the yeah, goofy yeah. remake. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was ridiculous. So those two movies, and people are surprised by the Andromeda Strain. But if you really, you know, if you look at it and you see everything that's involved, that's kind of like hacking as well, but just from a life sciences perspective. Right, right. And with a lot of equipment. <laughs> so uh, yeah so those are that's really what got me influenced but that that segment on 60 minutes was the trigger hmm. interesting that's really i mean that's it's an impressive how people get different influences that can sometimes shape their career and direction um you know sometimes it can be you know even for me i i'm i'm continuously shaping it i'm always learning watching other people getting mentors communicating um, but it's always interesting to see where other people's backgrounds and from different locations, even, you know, because I'm from Belfast, I had a different growing up youth, you know, where, you know, Belfast, when I was growing up was in, in violence, it was in wartime. Um, so there's a lot of things that you had to kind of ignore, uh, but in order to get your own focus. Um, so sometimes it was always challenging in, in those regards, but definitely, you know, movies and, and getting into gadgets were really that influence. Um, so for, for my, the second movie that I have that really also influenced me, which is really when it was when I started, uh, more into the education, more getting in the hands-on and it was a bit later, you know, war games got me into the techie side of things and really learning about, you know, things like you know, phone freaking, looking at how to, uh, you know, gain access to games, um, looking, you know, social engineering aspect of things that really got me you know, interested in that direction. But one that kind of next one is shaped was of course, sneakers which of course, you know, was this goofy comedy type of, you know, uh, scenario where you've got, so you've got the uh, Robert Redford playing, you know, uh, Bryce, um, was it uh, doing basically, you know, the, the sneakers and hacking into banks. And I think that was really kind of one of the first when we really got to understand what pen testing was, really looking at, you know, the access and inside of things. So that was another one. But for me, you know, a lot of, again, was the social engineering aspect of it. A lot of what they did in the movie itself somewhat was more kind of for the visual aspect of things where it wasn't really kind of, I wouldn't see it as being real world scenarios, but definitely the social aspects and the social engineering and, you know, a lot of what they were doing with the recording and getting access to the banks. Um, I find that really interesting as well. So did, did David, did, did you have any, did, did sneakers have any influence or because of course it was much later, it was around the early nineties. I think it was 93 timeframe when it came out. So it was almost 10 years later. Um, and that was, I think it was probably one of the first movies really that kind of re-brought, reintroduced hacking back in since war games. Um, so did, was is that something that influenced you at all or was it, um, something that just kind of passed by? So Larry and Walter also wrote, uh, sneakers. So they also were the screenwriters for sneakers. Um, so I worked a little bit on that, but not much. The concept was different for sneakers. Sneakers. They actually developed that while they were at 20th Century Fox. We were at a private studio. Well, I don't know, private studio. Green Green Free Productions was on Sweetser and Sunset in uh, in West Hollywood for War Games. But uh, they were at, they were actually they were then celebrities at that point. So they were actually at 20th Century Fox uh, doing uh, doing sneakers. So sneakers was and there's also a difference. And you can. You can kind of sense it watching the movie. War Games was a labor of love. Mm-hmm. Sneakers yep. to them was a job. That's the difference. And the people approached it very differently. The people that actually worked on the movies, not just the screenwriters, approached it very differently. For like Robert Redford, it was just a job. Right. That's my understanding, mm-hmm. uh, the way they approached it. And for Matthew Broderick, he really kind of got into War Games. 
You know, I mean, people were more enthusiastic about it. Uh, so sneakers. So yeah, that was much later. And that was really supposed to be a movie about physical security. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of morphed. Yeah. And then it kind of morphed. That's where the term sneakers comes from. And it comes from the physical security world. And then it morphed into what you see into the, in the movie uh, as, as movies all and do right they morph from the screenplay and they have to be visually exciting so that's how it evolved so at that point i was i had kind of moved on so it wasn't yeah sneakers wasn't uh, but i enjoyed the movie but it was <laughs> but i yeah it wasn't any part of so and i, I think of one I, of the one of the big differences with sneakers and war games war games is a story about it, it's it's more the story of the characters i think than sneakers yeah. is um, and I think that's where you see that sort of that warmth that comes through in war games that probably made it more um, even easier as an actor to to get into the character, get into the roles and not just treat it as a job, because I think it is it, it's much more accessible. Um, it, and it's more I think it's just more about the people in a, in a lot of ways. And and the hacking is uh, this this other this thing that sort of supports the movie. Um, it's you know, it's a key element, obviously. But it's it's not as um, I think it's not as uh, like where sneakers it's it's definitely the hacking is more in the in the in it than the character development I think. Yeah, Mike, I would say you know, to expand on that, they actually met my Jennifer. Her name was right. Helen, and right. I was actually with her for eleven years. We were high school sweethearts, oh, nice. and so they actually knew her. Right. Uh, she didn't really like the way that she was portrayed in the movie, <laughs> but, 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 uh, but she wound up getting promoted to first level management at Hughes aircraft uh, quicker than anybody in the history of Hughes aircraft. She became a double E and she was working on no star and other classified projects. Uh, and uh, she went that path. So you wouldn't think that from the Jennifer in the movie right, that right. she would wind up working on Mill Star, but uh, <laughs> but anyway. So, but but there really was, and, and, and again, they had met her. So there is that element in war games that that is based in on in, in reality, and it does make it more human. And there's right. nothing like that in sneakers, right? <laughs> so yeah. I think so. The, the characters really come through in war games much more. You, right. you get to see the more personal side of it, the more kind of human. You know where. Basically, people are curious as well. Um, and that definitely comes across in the characters for sure. And, and you can see that difference, absolutely, David, as you're mentioning. You know, for, for some, it's basically, I think for a lot, even in the war games, they were, you know, maybe Matthew Broderick's one of the, his kind of first roles and, and early roles he was getting into um, were basically were sneakers. They were already established kind of actors, you know, that's yes. playing a role and just doing a job. So I'm curious, um, there's a different Robert Redford movie that comes up frequently when you look for hacker movies. Um, I watched it last night, fell asleep. Um, uh, Three Days of the Condor. Um, yeah, exactly. Because it's not a hacker movie. It's, I mean, there's some computers. He's a CIA guy, whatever. Um, I'm curious if, um, if either of you have seen that movie or, or, or thoughts on it. Uh, I, I have seen it and I like it. It's, uh, I thought it was a great movie. I think it was the based on the book seven days of the condor so they compressed it for the movie yes yeah, so actually six, uh, six I, yeah. days of the condor was six days oh, was six the book days. yeah and, and to be fair to be fair to the movie i started it super late i had to put the kids down for bed i didn't start it until 11 o'clock <laughs> at night so the fact that i fell asleep is not any anything to do with the movie, as much the movie. As just, <laughs> right not a reflection on the movie just my inability to to stay up past 11 
<laughs> yeah, so I, I, I thought the premise was interesting. Uh, that I see, I like the premise, and you know, Max von Sydow is always, always a wonderful actor. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I enjoyed that part. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I thought it was an entertaining movie. Um, can't speak to it much beyond that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I yeah, did yeah. enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's been a number of years since I've actually seen that movie. I think it's it's. Um, when, when, when was it produced or when was it, when was it, it was like, it, it's a 70, oh, is it 60 something? No, late, 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 late 70s. It's, it's late, it's late 70s based on yeah, the music and the, the, the rest of it. It's definitely, I, I, mm-hmm. I would say it's late 70s. I don't remember exactly. Um, yeah, I think it's late 70s as well. Right. But you know, one of the movies that, um, you know, speaking of Matthew Broderick and war games and mm-hmm. where hacking is sort of you know, one of the movies that I think of, um, and you can convince me that it's not a hacking movie, is Ferris Bueller's Day Off. <laughs> now, there's a lot in that movie where, you know, whether it's him changing his attendance record, he get, his, his sister gets a car, he gets a computer. That was like the, one of the things. And so he, there's, there's definitely the supporting role that hacking plays throughout the movie. It's not in any way a main character. It's just the sort of side note, changing his attendance record. Um, the stuff that they do, the social engineering of how they get the restaurant into the restaurant that has, you know, it's all booked up. It's a fancy restaurant. They can't get the res, you know, they don't have a reservation. How are they going to get in and how they get through all of that. Um, and then even the total failed car hacking of trying to roll back the odometer. Um, so I think that that's <laughs> one of those movies that's like definitely doesn't come up in your, you know, your list of hacker movies, but one that, um, uh, I like to think of a lot. It definitely had a lot of influence on me. I think when I was in college, one of my uh, college roommates used to refer to me when I talked about my high school uh, antics. He's like, <laughs> you, you live Ferris Bueller's day off. You're Ferris Bueller. Um, and so, um, <laughs> so I think there's, some, there's something where that's... And for me, a lot of these movies, it's more about life imitating or art imitating life. Um, Ferris Bueller's mm-hmm. day off is like... It, it, I wouldn't say that it influenced me to get into, comp, you know, into computers or IT or any of the rest of it. But watching it, I think I think about those things and how it how it relates to my own life. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. I'm curious if anybody wants to argue with me about Ferris Bueller's Day Off. No, I, <laughs> I, I agree. I mean, one of the things is that you know a lot of people kind of refer to hacking as you know the technical side, the the, the computer side of things, and that's that's one element of it. Um, you know, a lot of when I'm growing up and, 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 and yourselves is that a lot of it applies the social engineering side of things is to get things that you want. Right. To, to get, you know, my parents to buy me a computer game or even to get a computer. You had to use social engineering to, first of all, get them to give you the computer. Um, so, so absolutely, when you're looking at first Bueller's Day Off, that a lot of the techniques, while they're not very techie focused, they are related to the social engineering aspect of really what hacking was is to really get what you wanted. Right. Uh, I mean, there's even so, the physical side about, um, where he, uh, what he does with the doorbell or the... Um, or his own bedroom door uh, when they open it and it turns on the snoring. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's all those aspects as well where he's tying into the sort of the physical world. Um, I'm curious, uh, David, what your thoughts are. Like that. It also did the breathing, so, the, yeah, the breathing well. and the mannequin. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot going on in there. Anyway, David. So, so I've seen it, I enjoyed it, and I don't remember any of that. <laughs> so I have zero recollection of any of those things from the movie. So sorry about that. I, I can't comment. I remember I watched the movie. I enjoyed it, but I have no comment beyond right. that. I mean, I think that's now we're seeing the difference in age, right? That was a movie that came out right in my, like, you know, that's definitely 80, uh, I want to say it's 
84, 85. It's, it's soon after war mm-hmm. games. And so it's sort of in the wheelhouse of movies that like I can, if it's on TV, I can't not watch it. Um, or at least tune in for some period of time. <laughs> and, um, anything, anything to get a day off school. <laughs> exactly. Um, war games <laughs> yes. also falls in that category. Um, and then, um, and another movie that falls in that category for me, again, it's another movie that, uh, definitely didn't influence me, but was so sort of parallels things really well, which is mm-hmm. office space. Um, which again, mm-hmm. hacking, it, you know, it's about, you know, the sort of, um, how they introduce some code into the, into the thing to do the, the Superman, whatever rounding error, uh, to, mm-hmm. to, uh, embezzle money. Um, and of course it goes wrong because software developers, uh, are not great at testing things. Um, I'm one. <laughs> I feel like as a software engineer, I can say that. So um, test, it wasn't it wasn't testing someone else's job. Exactly. It's the person right. using it is testing it. <laughs> right. And I think, so Office Space is another one of those movies that for me, I look back on, like when I saw it, 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 it has a different, you know, I was already working when it came out mm-hmm. and I actually didn't like it when I saw it in the theater as much because it was just too close to reality. And it's supposed to, you know, it's 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 a comedy. It's not, you know, but it's just a little too, it was a little mm-hmm. too close to reality at the time in the nineties before the dot-com bubble and stuff. Um, but now watching it, you know, and looking back, it's a, it's, it's a, um, another one of those movies that I, I'd love to watch. I think, you know, again, in hacking plays mm-hmm. sort of that like supporting role, I actually was in and I had the opportunity in the two thousands, I was working on a project where I was responsible for doing a whole bunch of calculations with, um, uh, retiree, um, health system where, Basically, it was reimbursing people, and there was the same thing where the the reimbursement was a calculation that involved a percent. And we sort of joked around about the like, well, can we just create a you know, like there's going to be rounding errors. What are we going to do with where, where does that money go? Um, and we you know, so those op- so not to say that we ever thought about doing the embezzlement, but more just the <laughs> it turns out that like these things actually do happen. You can these situations mm-hmm. happen in the real world where you have those opportunities, uh, and I think and that, that brings up. That brings yeah. up a really good question that I've got. Uh, so, David, one of the things you know, different between when you were you know getting involved in you know this and when I started, and a lot of what can also I led on the more cautionary side because there was no when I was doing it, it was illegal. There was laws right. that was introduced in the early '90s that actually influenced that actually made protection and computer crime laws and stuff and. And, you know, when you had started, you know, back in the late 70s and 80s, there was no laws that would have actually criminalized some of those activities. So do you think that even war games itself actually maybe have influenced laws and regulations and later um, afterwards, maybe even those, you know. Yes. Can you guys still hear me? Yeah. We're seeing, I'm getting a little bit of a pause here. Okay. The movies actually had a kind of influence on in those. So uh, if you read the book, uh, Dark Territory uh, by Kaplan, uh, he talks about that. He opens up with war games. Reagan, the, the book opens with Reagan uh, telling a meeting that, did you guys see this movie over the weekend? It's called War Games. I thought that was a great way to open the book. Right. No, here's the president of the United States, all enthusiastic about this, and then it goes on and on and on. And that actually did lead to the uh, the CFAA. It is the CFAA, I believe, and, and that's really still the main law in existence. Now, when I was doing things, I was a member of AFCIA and the Old Pros. So, uh, so the signal 
Association for the United States, the Oak Roses Electronic Warfare. They had a huge operation at uh, at the old Green Monster, the old used aircraft building where my where Jennifer wound up working. My Jennifer. Uh, before GM bought it and I don't know what they've done with it. And then also, and then FCO was at the air force space division, which was, uh, which was in, uh, in El Segundo. Well, they're both near there. So anyway, so, so people knew what I was doing. So certain people knew what I was doing. So, so if things really got out of hand, there were people that say, okay, don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, but you're right. There were no laws, but, um, I wasn't dumb enough to try certain things I did without <laughs> at least somebody knowing what I was going to be doing right. and knowing that I wouldn't take anything too far. So, so I did take that uh, under consideration um, back then. So again, people from the Old Crows, people from Axia, they were both involved. I, I should mention something else that was that was kind of critical for me. There was a group that I belonged to called PCC. And it kind of meant Personal Computer Club, but they never wanted to really name the acronym. So it's just PCC. And they were a hobbyist group. And we used to do a lot of stuff. This is, this is something, this will date me. HP65s. So HP65s were the first real kind of handheld computers right. and and we were t- we were writing code and doing all sorts of things with it and that's what really was a group to support the hp 65 and that really helped develop my skills because this was all a bunch of hacker types and that really did help it really it, it uh it was nice to have a supporting group uh while you're while you're developing your skills and learning all of this i think that was really kind of critical and I used to go there quite often. Like it was uh, Friday nights. We met on Friday nights and, and it was pretty far away from me. It was about an hour drive from, from where I was now in Los Angeles. It's probably about a three hour drive because of traffic. But, um, but anyway, so that was also influential. And I think, I think, and what's my point? My point is having a support group, a hobbyist group, I think helps. It really does help uh, develop your skills and encourages you to pursue more things. You always want to one up your buddy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And, and that drives people toward excellence. And, and, and I, and I, and the whole backdrop of the, of the Apollo program, the space race in general, I think was also critical. It was always in the back of our minds. Right. And, and that's something I think you guys missed because of your age that the space race was over. You know, but for but for but in my age group, the space age was really a driving force behind everything, behind really everything. And it's funny that you yeah. mentioned things that we, you know, because my age, our age, um, you know, we grew up. Internet was, you know, World Wide Web. All that is when I was in college. You guys, yeah. you know, it's it's different. And so I think back to you, you mentioned being in clubs and how important being in clubs was. Um, nowadays, with the internet and the accessibility to all this information. I think that also breeds this, like, you know, like there was no such thing as a script kitty back in the early days because you had to understand, you had to work with people. You had to, you, you couldn't just copy and paste a, a you know, a, a hack and, you know, or not understand what was going on. And I think that um, that's another thing that is missing is the sort of human element. I think it's really easy to, to sort of get in, to get access to so much information without actually that human 
portion of it where I think yeah. where if you're in a club, not only are you getting that support, but you're also getting sort of that ethical, moral, like here's a human who's going to potentially help me to, you know, to like remind me to like be a human and, and, and morals and ethics and things like that, that I think might be, uh, might be lacking a little bit now with, with the online aspect of it. Yeah, I think having the, having things only online and people doing clubs online and memberships and subscriptions and, and communicating only online, I think it does lose that society, moral, ethical compass. Because even when I was growing up, that's what a lot of influence and prevented me from getting into the criminal. I think we all started off in some regards a script kitty, you know. That's right. where I kind of would have got, get hands on and copying things from magazines and books and and you know learning things from from movies and, and re- repeating. and then perfecting them, get, getting better. Um, but it was the clubs that kept their moral, moral compass. Um, it was really when we we're talking about, you know, other people and mentors and societies. And I think even, I think that's what's critical in, in even the early days of the loft and called mm-hmm. it the dead cow. They kept each other, their moral compass in the right direction, the ethical reasons. And having those types of clubs where people who may have by themselves, without that com- club or community, may have went off into, you know, kind of criminal directions, it was that kind of mentorship and, and moral that kept everyone going down the right path. And I think today we are missing a lot of that. And I think that's probably why we do see a lot of youth going into criminal activities and we get into this rehabilitation and re-education and reintroduction to society programs that hopefully, you know, will, I think we, we need to catch it earlier. So, mm-hmm. Well, I think one key thing is the hobbyist element in many ways is just gone. So if you remember that scene in, in Apollo 13, where they throw all the materials on the table, and they're trying to figure out how to, that's what we would do at PCC. We would do that stuff. We'd get the latest issue of popular electronics. We'd throw all the stuff on the table. We add a bunch of new stuff to it. Let's go at it guys. And, and that's just totally missing. And that you need to do in a group hands-on. You can't do it online. Can't deal with hardware online. Right. Yeah. Uh, right. You got to do it. Yeah. I don't know. We do, do, we do, do infrastructure. Work. We do infrastructure as code now, man. Like that's the thing, right? Like I'm yeah. a huge proponent of DevSecOps. Like right now, all of my infrastructure, it's in this file. That's my hardware. It's awesome. Um, it gives me a lot of control. When, 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 your, when your internet connection goes down, that's, that's, that's when the problem happens. Exactly. <laughs> so... But so, David, one of the next questions, and kind of closing up to the end, is that from a direction side, is there anything you know after those times? What since then? What has been you know what would have influenced you the most? I mean, there's been so much iconic. You know, I think in the mid '90s, kind of there was a phase of trial. You know, movies coming out that had some components to it, and I think in the late now 2010s and since then, of course, there's been a resurgence. And I think one that I remember that probably had a a more vision, visionary aspect, which people don't really talk about, and it's somewhat lost in, in history as well, was Johnny Mnemonic, mm. where basically uh, Kenner Reeves, um, you know, is basically having a chip in his head where it contains data and there's the artificial intelligence, so those elements of it. And I think for me, is that there's some things lost in time. That for me was a visionary side that showed me, you know, sort of a glimpse into the future. Uh, but since, since then, has there been anything that's influenced you or that would have been uh, iconic that, you know, since that era, that has probably, you know, uh, given you some kind of uh, direction yourself or, 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 you know, for the future, even in artificial intelligence per se. 
Hey, I think we should all admit that uh, Jesus Christ was a hacker, right? Neo was a hacker. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, so I think that's the best embodiment of what a hacker is. So I think just the, right now, I think if I was younger looking at what the motivation would be, I would say it's the world situation. Mm-hmm. I think it's just responding to global threats. We all know what they are. I can't even talk about them because of where I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> so these are issues. And, and, but there are, there are also opportunities, right, for career paths opportunities for people to pursue. So the world's changed in that sense with uh, state actors, not just non-state actors, not just the lone hacker, the lone wolf hacker. Uh, it's, it's changed. The world has changed. And um, who would have thought this would become a profession? No, not I. What I think is interesting is the ethical hacker is a profession now, right? With bug bounty programs, with all these different ways of like back in the day, if you were to hack into a system, there were two possibilities. One was you end up in jail or you end up working for the company that you just hacked into, right? Like on their security team. Like, <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. Nowadays, it's the like, reverse. You, you do your time and then you get hired by the Right, exactly. Or, or, or both. Right, or both. Um, now, like you can actually have a whole career based on the ethical hacking mm-hmm. side of helping companies to secure their systems, uh, cybersecurity, that whole thing. It covers everybody now it's there's not uh there's no company that doesn't have some sort of Mm -hmm. online presence or some need for for security even if you're a mom pop shop chances are you have a point of sale system that is somehow connecting to the internet in order to to do things in it and so i think that notion that you can actually have a a, a legitimate career you know as Mm -hmm. a as a hacker um uh i think is awesome and i think it's you know it really does Mm -hmm. Um, speak volumes for where we've come in society from the sort of back room, sort of in the dark type world to yeah. really uh, in the forefront. Yeah, let's go back to David's point. And, you know, yeah. one of the things when I started, it, there was, you know, when I started my career, it was 1991 where I started university. That's where basically I got into choosing. I had, the, I had, the, I had, I had a crossroads in, in my youth. One was becoming an artist. <laughs> um, and the second one was going into computer science. And I chose wisely. Right. <laughs> so, but I kept, the art, I kept the artist part of me, me going. But one of the things was that, you know, yeah, security was not, it wasn't a job. It wasn't a role. It wasn't a career. It was something that I did as part of my job. It was a, I was a sys administrator. I was a network infrastructure. Um, I was a computer science. Security was a component. It was one of the things that I had to do as part of the overall job of keeping, you know, the business running. And even to the point where that um, a lot of the things I was doing was run automation. I was putting defibrillators in ambulances and EPG readings and connecting them through old Nokia, you know, 3,200 phones back into emergency rooms and then sending uh, patient data before the ambulance arrived at the emergency room so doctors can already pre-diagnose victims as they were arriving. That's what we were using technology for was to make the world a better, make it a better connected, a safer and looking at really, you know, the, the well-being of people. And it wasn't, it was around 2002 where I was a responsible in, in network operations center. And it was when I became a secondary victim of a major DDoS attack. I don't know, if, uh, David, if you're familiar with Steve Gibson, uh, who's now, of course, you know, he runs the security podcast. He's an amazing guy. And at the time, that's actually that single event, his GRC, Gibson Research uh, Company, that was a victim of the same DDoS attack that we were a secondary victim of. 
That was my transition. That one point in time that DDoS attack at grc.com got, which turned into an amazing white paper. I, I love reading uh, Steve Gibson's uh, report that he wrote on it about this 13-year-old uh, script kitty hacker who just one day decided to turn his botnets against his company. And reading even the communication that he had, it was that one point in time. That's where my career changed. That's where my direction, where it was more about networks. Before that, it was about connection. And then all of a sudden, I, you know, that DDoS attack changed me to being focused purely on that point in time forwards into cybersecurity. Um, but yeah, who would have thought that even today, you know, that this would have actually became a job, you know, breaking into to, you know, internet banks, not physical banks. Um, it would have actually turned into, you know, many people in career, even now at university, I was actually uh, a mentor and do, you know, people's thesis and their security master, cybersecurity master's courses here in Estonia. So giving, you know, direction and their thesis as well. And even found out last week that one of the videos that I've done in the industry has now been used to educate people at Liverpool University. So it's amazing that how we've came along that you can actually now have a completely dedicated career um, in this in this area. It's amazing. It is. It, it really is. Looking back from those days, yeah, it was not obvious this would happen. Right. <laughs> maybe maybe a career path in the NSA or in some sort of signal intelligence, perhaps. Because mm-hmm. we right. know we're ha- radio operators, right? So that just kind of makes sense. But the way it evolved, no, I don't think anybody... Uh, nobody back then really saw that. Yeah, absolutely. Great. So I think, one of the, Mike, any any other other thoughts or comments that you want to cover? No, I think uh, I think we've uh, we've we've covered the full gambit. Um, you know, everything from movies to to books and and uh, some real life stuff. So I think uh, things are in great shape. Yeah, one I want to do make a comment to you know one one that has also you know made an influence. Uh, probably not a major. You know, is is of course the movie Tron. Um, mm. <laughs> so um, that's one that definitely that kind of you know gets lost in time as well. Uh, but it, you know, it, it was one that also influenced a lot of kind of more of the kind of visual and the gaming aspect of things uh, for me, and because that's always something I continue to do. Um, I, you know, when you want to basically get back in and you know get your thumbs really tired, <laughs> nothing like getting into a good game console. Um, so it's a, it's a pleasure. Thank you, David, for coming on the show. It's amazing and great to have you here. Hopefully, it's been an interesting conversation and a, a kind of re uh, kind of going down memory lane because I think, think it's really important for the audience that listeners of the show that kind of where it all comes from. I think you know people sometimes uh, we I, it's important to connect people with the past and things that really sh- shaped and, and, and influenced where we are today. And you know we've been in the industry a long time and, and David a little bit longer <laughs> so, um, that have really you know through basically our past, you know, and hopefully sharing and educating and showing people, you know, it's important to make sure that you know the basics, you know, basically getting into where it came from and even sometimes get a little bit hands-on with hardware. You know, know, I've got a couple of hand radios behind me, which I'm always venturing back into. And it's really important for the next talent and the next future that comes in this industry that we keep them, you know, providing the resources and, and things that do stand in time that provide additional education. Make sure, again, you know, as, as, as Mike mentioned, it's important that we keep their moral compass. We, we keep it down the path of ethical. Um, and I think hopefully, you know, David, I know the world is a bit of a chaos right now and, you know, political directions are going different ways. But what I do find during these times of pandemics and, and situations and political unrest and other things is that technology does bring us together. Um, it's one thing that connects us and one thing that, you know, 
is the common language in many cases across different cultures. And hopefully that will provide an influence as well to, to reverse some of the things that you know, is, is currently happening. And hopefully technology can be used to bring us much more closer together and provide a much more safer society moving forward. So it's absolute pleasure having you on the show. Is there anything you want to, to, to share with the audience or anything you, any thoughts or, or last minute comments? Well, I think your techno optimism is a great way to end this. I want to thank you guys for inviting me on. Mike, we've never met before, so it's nice chatting with you. And Joe, always, I always, you know, we always enjoy our time together. So, uh, so thank you for letting me uh, share some of the uh, some of the memories. And, and now we need to look for, and now we need to look forward to a really good AI based cyber grand challenge based movie. That's where I see the direction going. That's where it's going to go next. Quantum computing, more, more quantum than AI, but also, but, uh, but also AI. Yeah, absolutely. Mike, any last minute comments for the audience? No, I, I love the idea of the, uh, the quantum cause that'll, it'll break all of our modern encryption. I have the screenplay in my head already. Um, <laughs> let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> so any, any, anyone Yeah, we can do it. You know, anyone who listens to the podcast is in movie making that really wants to, to take this to the next level in reality. We're all here to, to be advisors and consult and, and share our thoughts and ideas. Uh, absolutely. Because absolutely, absolutely. we, we have, you know, on the show, we have the right people. Um, and, uh, again, at that point, it's a pleasure, David, having you on. I look forward to seeing you in the future. If you're going, you know, I'll probably, you're going to be closer to me in the near future. So at some point, I'm pretty sure I'll, I'll make a hop over and we'll, we'll grab a, a drink or some dinner together. Uh, Mike, next time I'm in D.C., I have no idea when that's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'm sure we'll see each other. We're opening up, but I'm definitely sure we'll catch up. So yep. for the audience, again, many thanks for uh, being on the show and listening to us going on about things that really shaped where we are today. Um, and, uh, again, for this podcast is every two weeks, subscribe wherever the subscription is, uh, follow us, listen to us, share us with your friends and, uh, look forward to, you know, every two weeks, come and catch up with us on every exciting new topics. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Have a safe day and goodbye. Learn how your team can get a free trial of Cybrae for business by going to www.cybrae.it slash business. This podcast is also brought to you by Thycotic, the leader in privileged access management. To learn more, visit www.thycotic.com.